0: The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die for I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord, and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household, and he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the tablets of the covenant law so he will not die. He is to take some of the bull's blood, and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. He then shall slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people, and take its blood behind the curtain, and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. Then he shall come out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on all the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it and to consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness. Then Aaron is to go into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments he put on before he entered the most holy place, and he is to leave them there. He shall bathe himself with water in the sanctuary area and put on his regular garments. Then he shall come out and sacrifice the burnt offering for himself and the burnt offering for the people to make atonement for himself and for the people. He shall also burn the fat of the sin offering on the altar. The man who releases the goat as a scapegoat must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterward, he may come into the camp. The bull and the goat for the sin offerings, whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement, must be taken outside the camp. Their hides, flesh, and intestines are to be burned up. The man who burns them must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterward, he may come into the camp. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the 10th day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether native born or a foreigner residing among you. Because on this day, Atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then, before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. It is a day of Sabbath rest, and you must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. The priest who is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make atonement. He is to put on the sacred linen garments and make atonement for the most holy place, for the tent of meeting and the altar and for the priests, and all the members of the community. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. And it was done, as the Lord commanded Moses. And this is the word of the Lord.
1: I saw an open field, so covered with dead, that it would have been possible to walk across the clearing in any direction, stepping only on dead bodies without a foot touching the ground. That's how Ulysses S. Grant described the scene in the aftermath of the Battle of Shiloh in 1862. More Americans died in the Civil War than in the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, the Mexican War, the Spanish-American War, World War I, World War II, and the Korean War combined, making those years between 1861 and 1865 the bloodiest In American history. And the thing about it was, innovations in photography meant that ordinary citizens could not think about all the carnage as newspapers and pictures brought the front line to their front porch. So when the last shot was fired and the two sides agreed to terms not 80 miles down the road from here, this newly reunited Republic was left with this question, is there any meaning in all that blood? We come this morning to the Old Testament book of Leviticus, a book famous for its bloody descriptions of ritual sacrifice and atonement. And no day on the Israelite calendar was more bloody than the day of atonement, day of atonement rather, instituted in our sermon text Leviticus 16. So if you have a Bible, uh, turn to Leviticus 16 or you can also follow along on your service guide. As we look at the book of Leviticus, we'll ask ourselves the question, what is the meaning in all that blood? Well, the meaning of all this blood, the presence of this elaborate system of sacrifice, meant that God was inviting sinners into his presence. But it also highlighted the inherent tension of a holy God drawing near to an unholy people. God had chosen the nation of Israel to be his special people. He promised his presence would dwell among them as they lived under his rule in his place. That's really the story of the book of Exodus. But for that to happen, something had to be done to make God's presence possible without A, compromising his character, or B, destroying the people. And so Moses kept writing. Exodus ends, Leviticus begins. The problem of God's presence remedied through sacrifice. None more important than those done on the Day of Atonement. So if you're taking notes this morning, uh, I think the main point of this passage is this, and hopefully the main point of the sermon is this. uh, God invites you to enjoy his presence, but there's a price of admission that's too high to pay. Someone is going to have to pay it for you. God invites you to enjoy his presence, but there's a price of admission that you cannot afford Someone is going to have to pay it for you. The Day of Atonement was all about making God's presence possible. And to do that, God remedies a problem through a priest, by a process, for the people. And those will serve as our main points. The problem, the priest, the process, and the people. So we'll look at the problem in verses 1 and 2. The priest in verses 3 through 5 the process in verses 6 through 28 and the people in verses 29 through 34. You know, I could preach this sermon in two ways, like an episode of Murder She Wrote or an episode of Columbo. <laughs> so Murder She Wrote works up to the big reveal at the end, the big who done it. Columbo starts with that reveal and then works backwards to show how he comes to figure it out. I'm going to do the latter. Much like my junior high and high school and college math homework, I'm going to be doing all of this in heavy reliance on the answers in the back of the book, uh, <laughs> particularly the book of Hebrews. The best commentary ever written on the book of Leviticus, and it comes free in your Bible because it helps us to locate Leviticus in its place in redemptive history, it shows us where the puzzle piece fits within the big picture of the story of Scripture, and shows us the organic progression from the Day of Atonement to what the Day of Atonement pointed to in the work of Jesus Christ. So let's begin with the problem, verses 1 and 2. The Day of Atonement centered on the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the place at this point in redemptive history where God's presence dwelled among the people. Basically, you had this very large, elaborate, mobile tent That's what the tabernacle was, a very large, elaborate, mobile tent that was carried on poles uh, wherever the Israelites went on their way to the Promised Land. And in this tent, there were three sections. You had the outer court, where everyday sacrifices took place, and then you had a tent within the tent that was made up of two sections, the the holy place and the most holy place. And the further you went into the tabernacle, the more holy the spaces became. And in that most holy place, you might have also heard it called the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And the Ark was like the footstool of God's earthly throne, the place where his presence, his glory, was appearing in the form of a cloud. God's presence, mediated to the people through the tabernacle and through the priest, was threatened by one huge problem, Israel's sin. Their sin threatened their access to God by defiling God's sacred space and by drawing God's holy wrath. Verse 1 begins with the crisis that illustrated the uneasy dynamic between God and his people. Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The tabernacle had to be kept ritually clean, a word that is used a lot in Leviticus or holy, set apart. And two dead bodies on the tabernacle floor was about the most unclean and unholy situation imaginable. Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's two sons, were incinerated before the Lord when they offered unauthorized fire in Leviticus 10, 1 through 3. Now, don't let the chapter divisions trip you up, because this happened just moments before God began telling Moses to tell Aaron about the Day of Atonement. This was fresh. This had just happened. They went into the most holy place, uninvited, and with a gift that God didn't ask for. Their approach to God showed that they thought too highly of themselves and too little about God. They disregarded the massive gap between creator and creature, holy God and sinful man, and they paid with their lives. The defilement of the tabernacle by Aaron's sons wasn't an isolated incident, though. Israel constantly sinned against the Lord. So I'd say if this event had not happened, these atonement sacrifices on the day of atonement would have still been necessary. The purity of God's dwelling place was under constant threat just because Israel lived across the street. They were killers for the market value of the tabernacle. They were not good neighbors. And the Israelites, priests included, were under the constant threat of God's wrath. His righteous anger towards sin poured out in judgment because of their failure to measure up to God's holy standard. It's worth mentioning at the outset that this wasn't an ancient Israelite problem. This is a us problem. We all have this problem of deserving God's wrath. We've all been created to glorify God by enjoying him. By living for him, and yet we have refused to give him the glory that he's due. We've turned away and have decided to worship ourselves or other things instead of him, and that makes us worthy only of eternal destruction. None of us are good enough to be with God. But we see his grace towards sinners here when even after the latest episode with Aaron's sons, God provided a solution to Israel's presence problem. In verse 2, God told Moses to tell Aaron that there are rules for when and how he is to be approached. He cannot be worshipped on human terms, but he can and he will be worshipped on the terms and conditions written by his divine hand. Terms ratified in blood. How do you approach God? And keep in mind, ignoring him or rejecting him counts. Do you treat God like a cosmic grandfather who isn't too bothered by whatever you do, isn't going to pass judgment because he's just happy you came by to visit? Friend, any road to God that you take, using your own ideas about who he is or how he's to be worshipped, will end up in something far worse than a physical death through fire. But Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. The only way to fellowship with the God of the universe is through Jesus Christ, his Son, the Lamb slain, to take away the sins of the world. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, the final remedy to this presence problem has arrived. Think about Hebrews 4.16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, That we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Under the old covenant, entrance into God's presence was by appointment only and only the priest could go in. But under the new covenant, through the blood of Jesus Christ, walk-ins are always accepted. All because of the work of our great high priest. That takes us to point number two, the priest, verses three through five. The Day of Atonement benefited the whole nation, but was mostly the work of one man, Aaron, Israel's inaugural high priest, who God had chosen to make his family a priestly family, to make priesthood their family business. They were tasked with facilitating the sacrificial system as go-betweens, as mediators between God and Israel. Now, only Aaron was allowed to enter the holy places to make atonement on this most holy day. Once a year, as we see at the end of the passage, Aaron would offer sacrifices to God that he prescribed, that God prescribed, to enable his presence among the people. The work of the high priest then was to unite God and man. To do so, though, Aaron had to prepare himself for his work. Verses 3 and 5, just to summarize, God told him to gather the animals needed to complete the ritual. He'd need a bull and a ram to make atonement for his sins and the sins of his family, and then a ram and two goats uh, to uh, atone for the sins of Israel and uh, the the rest of the people, all of Israel. So Aaron may be a high priest, but he's as sinful as anyone else. His presence inside the tabernacle compromised its purity too. He needed the blood of an animal just to get inside to the most holy place to offer the sacrifices. And then next, he has to get dressed. Verse 4. He's to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He's to tie the linen sash around him and put on a linen turban. These are sacred garments. So he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. Now, interestingly, this linen tunic, however sacred, is less ornate than his usually priestly fit. So uh, Christmas Day is the high-water mark of the NBA regular season. So it's not the playoffs, but the most important day of the regular season is Christmas Day. And if you tune in, you'll notice the uniforms right away. Christmas Day is where the uniform designers pull out all the stops. Uh, You see flashy uniforms for big-time games. We might expect Aaron's outfit to be even more fancy given the occasion. But Aaron, rocking up to this Day of Atonement, in a simple linen tunic would be like the Celtics taking the court on Christmas Day in their practice jerseys. I would have been more contextual and used the wizards, but we're not going to kid ourselves and act like the wizards would get a game on Christmas Day. (laughs) Seriously, though, what gives? Why did he show up in this simple linen tunic? It was because God wanted Aaron's appearance to communicate something. There is no room for pretense when you come face-to-face with a holy God. He didn't want us to get this twisted. Aaron worked for God, not vice versa. Aaron could have been nominated for Best Supporting Actor at best, but God was the star of the show when the Day of Atonement rolled around. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you may wonder who our high priest is at at, uh, RCBC. You look on the back of your service guide, and you see three pastors, one pastoral assistant. What up? But no high priest. But well, that's because Aaron's main duty on the Day of Atonement was to make us look for a better priest, one who would come to do what Aaron could not do. And there are two things about Aaron that show us that he's ultimately not going to be able to provide the atonement to fully and finally forgive the people's sins. One, he was sinful himself, and two, he died. And all of Aaron's descendants were sinful people who died. And that's why we read in Hebrews 7, 23-27, Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus is a better high priest than Aaron because he had no sin of his own to deal with. Jesus is a better high priest than Aaron because he rose from the grave and he isn't ever going back in. The eternal Son of God became like us in every way except without sin to be our mediator before the Father. His identity as one person who is fully God and fully man qualifies him to bridge the gap, to bridge it forever so that he's always there at the right hand praying for us. Brother and sister members, Are you good enough for God? No. Me either. But do you know who is? Our great high priest. The one who came, lived, died, rose, and ascended to bring us to God and to bring us to each other. Let's use this week to point point one another to our mutual advocate before the Father, the one the Father himself has provided for us. That's the priest. Now let's think about the process. Point three, the process, verses 6 through 28. So verses 6 through 10, you may have picked up on this as Tina read, I give an overview of the process on the Day of Atonement. And then verses 11 through 28 go over that same process in more detail. So Aaron's day would start in the first section of the tabernacle at the altar where the daily sacrifices were made. There he'd slaughter the bull he brought for himself and cast lots to see which of the two goats he'd slaughter for the sins of the people. And the other goat, often referred to as the scapegoat, uh, would be left for later on, as we'll read. One of the last of his Day of Atonement duties was through his assistant to, um, to take the scapegoat and send it into the wilderness. Aaron then took the blood of the slaughtered bull and the slaughtered goat with him and entered into the most holy place, stopping... At the curtain that served as the entrance, before he got there, he had to burn incense on the incense altar to shield his eyes, to shield his vision from the fullness of God's glorious presence, lest he stop dead in his tracks, quite literally. And then we read in verse fourteen, he's to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. So God commanded Aaron to sprinkle blood seven times in front of and on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, called here the atonement cover. You might be familiar with it being called the mercy seat, like in our song, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. And he's told to do the same thing with the goat's blood that he had slaughtered in verse 15. Again, seven times. Why seven? Seven in the Bible representing perfection, wholeness, completion. So even though the Day of Atonement, as we've Uh, probably already picked up on, had to be repeated each year and ultimately would be superseded by the coming Messiah, there's a very real sense in which these sacrifices temporarily satisfied the demands of God's holiness. In verse 16, Aaron uh, says that Aaron did this not to make atonement for him or for the people, but to cleanse the defiled tabernacle, making it holy and habitable for God. He had sprinkled blood on every surface to stain remove Israel's sin. Now, as Aaron went, his journey into the heart of the tabernacle and back out would have taken him from east to west, which you may recognize as the opposite way that Adam and Eve traveled when they were removed from the garden. When he stopped at the curtain to burn incense, he would have been greeted by an embroidered angel, the same creature that God had placed at the entrance of the garden to block their way back into paradise, symbolizing that separation between God and man. That means the Day of Atonement was just one step in God's plan to reverse the curse of the fall, to reverse what happened when Adam and Eve brought sin into the world. The blood of this bull and this goat laid the groundwork for the people to enjoy God's presence. God purified his dwelling place with sacrifices so that they could draw near. Do you know that God has provided a dwelling place where we can draw near to him this morning? And it's not this building, but I am talking about the local church. Again, not a building, but the people. Jesus took on flesh, it says in John 1, 14, and literally tabernacle dwelled among us. When we are united to him, not only are we indwelt with the gift of the Holy Spirit, but God joins us together as living stones to make a spiritual house for himself a dwelling place for God. Christ shed blood makes us, all of us, members of River City Baptist Church gather just like this into a fitting place for God's presence. River City Baptist Church is holy to the Lord, sacred, clean, but only because of the one who died in our place. Which is a good segue into verses 20 and 22, 21, 21, 20 and 21 and 22, and the scapegoat. Verse 20, when Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He's to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all of their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness." And what isn't mentioned, but what is implied is that it was released into the wilderness to die. He doesn't get off any better than the other goat. But what we have here is a powerful picture of what Christians for centuries have referred to as penal substitutionary atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement, which is at the the very center of what we believe as a church. Penal in that this scapegoat paid the penalty for the sins committed by the people. The animal experienced the wrath of God substitutionary in that the scapegoat experienced the wrath of God instead of Aaron and the people. The animal took Israel's place, receiving the judgment Israel had earned. All of this to provide atonement, to provide peace between God and man by removing the reason for the alienation in the first place, providing reconciliation in the face of humankind's rebellion against the one who created us. So one goat's blood dealt with the effects of Israel's sin, the pollution it caused, and the other dealt with the sin itself. Israel's guilt went running out of the camp into the wilderness, ever, never to be seen again. The God that they had offended removed their sins from them as far as the east is from the west. Nothing that Israel did on their own could have earned them a place in God's presence. Like I could mentioned in the main point, the bill was too high for them to pay. One sin, just one little sin, as if there is such a thing, against a holy God, deserves an infinite penalty because he's just that good. And they did a lot more sins than that. Now, you may think, hold up. How could Israel not pay for their debt, but an animal could? How could an animal sacrifice be worthy enough to pay such an outrageous debt? That's a good question. And actually, they weren't. Hebrews 10.4 makes the point plain. It was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That must mean that Israel's participation in the Day of Atonement, understood correctly by us and by them, was a reliance on the means provided by God at that time to have their guilt forgiven while looking forward to a better sacrifice promised that would come and provide that full and final salvation that they were looking for and by eternal fellowship with God. We read in Hebrews 9:23 through 26. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter to offer himself again and again the way the high priest entered the most holy place every year with blood that was not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Brothers and sisters, that means Jesus isn't only the high priest we need. He's the sacrifice that we need too. He entered into the real most holy place in the presence of God the Father and offered his own blood to pay for our sins, to pay for our transgressions, to purchase the new covenant in his blood. He bore the wrath of God on the cross in our place, paying the penalty we could not pay. In our place, condemned, he stood. The guiltless gave himself for the guilty, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? So that he could bring us To the presence of God. Friend, what will you count on when you inevitably stand face to face with the living God? Even your best is not good enough in the face of divine perfection. Repent of your sins. Rely on Christ's life and death to count as your own. He offered himself up to God to satisfy the demands of God's holiness that you could not satisfy and set you free from sin and the penalty for it. Count on him. To present you before God blameless and with great joy. After this, Aaron's told to remove his clothes, wash up in the basin, and everything that's left over gets burned either on the altar or out in the camp with his assistants. And that meant that Aaron's work was done. Until next year. Which takes us to verse four. The people. Verses 29 through 34. As the passage comes to a close, the focus of the passage switches. How were the people of Israel to respond to all this? What was their responsibility on the day of atonement? Verse 29. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether native-born or a foreigner residing among you. Because on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. And then before the Lord, you'll be clean from all your sins. It's a day of Sabbath rest, and you must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. So God commands the people to deny themselves and rest. Deny yourselves and rest. It's a bit of an odd combination, isn't it? On my vacation days, I tend to eat more. I tend to spend a little bit more money, really blow it out, you know. But God told the Israelites to spend this day off fasting, not feasting. It's a puzzling call to contrition and reliance, to recognize their spiritual bankruptcy, but trust that God has paid their debt through the sacrificial system. But if we think about it, we recognize those commandments, don't we? Turn and trust. Recognize you're a sinner. Rest in a Savior. Repent and believe. Now, Our response to God's mercy doesn't somehow add to the finished work that he's provided. But it does, importantly, connect us to that work. Each of us has to be personally and vitally united to God's provided means of salvation for it to have any benefit for us. We can only receive the gift of salvation if we've repented and relied on the one whose blood secured it. So it wasn't acceptable for the people of Israel to use the Day of Atonement as an ancient form of fire insurance faith. You know, the kind of faith that assents to the truths about God without genuine heart change, without any hatred of sin or love for God. The kind of faith that assumes that proximity to the things of God counts as true devotion to Him. God was not and is not interested in giving people the blessings of His presence who have no interest in Him. Friend, don't assume that you're good with God because you go to church, pray from time to time. You can't be saved by being baptized or by taking the Lord's Supper. All those things are good. Those things, though, are the fruit of a heart transformed by divine grace, rooted in the finished work of Christ. If you haven't, take God's side against your sin. Cast yourself on Christ and find all of your happiness in him. Well, God told Moses to record all of this and to establish this day of atonement ritual as an ongoing ordinance. The Israelites had a yearly reminder of their guilt and their impurity before God, forced to remember that even though the sacrifice kicked the can of God's wrath a little further down the road, his holiness and their unholiness was still an issue. Faith in the Old Covenant was active participation in the means of grace that God provided then and the hope of the fulfillment of God's promise in the future. And the point of what we've been saying is this, to steal a phrase from the book of Hebrews, we have that fulfillment now. Jesus Christ has come to do away with our sin completely. There is no wrath less for us to fear because his death satisfied it all. We don't have to fear that our impurity is going to bar us access to God because we are united to a high priest who is pure, unstained, standing as our mediator as we speak. Faith in this age of the new covenant looks backward as we remember what has been accomplished. Isn't that what we do when we take the Lord's Supper together? Jesus established the supper as an ongoing ordinance of rest. And it's not a fast, it's a feast We gather around the table of our king and celebrate what he did to make us children of God through his body and blood. But we do also come together to look forward. The Lord's Supper is also a reminder that Jesus is coming back again. And when he does, he's going to take us to the place that God has prepared to dwell with his people, the new heavens and the new earth. Friends, there is good news in all this blood. The price to enjoy the presence of God was too much for any of us to afford. But praise God, Jesus Christ has paid it all. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have given your Son so that by the power of your Holy Spirit we can draw near to you. God, we ask that you would give us the gifts of faith and repentance, give us spiritual sight to see your glory so that we can be transformed more into the image of your Son. God, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.